A quick note before we begin to announce the winner of the competition which ended on Christmas Eve to win a copy of my book Ghosts of York. The winner was Danielle Preston. Congratulations Danielle, I hope you enjoy the book. While I'm here, I'd love to wish you the very, very, very best for 2023. I hope this turns out to be a phenomenal year for you, and I'd like to thank you, truly, for listening to How Haunted. The reception has been incredible since I started this podcast only a few months back, and it does mean so much to me when I receive emails from people or interact with listeners on Instagram or Twitter. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast. Now on with the show. Enjoy. Below Edinburgh's famous Royal Mile lies a historic close that was once a thriving community in its own right. It was open to the skies above and named, unusually for the 17th century, for a woman who was the most successful businesswoman here until her death in 1644. The building of the Royal Exchange in the 18th century spelt the end for this place and it would be, eventually, buried beneath the city streets lost and unused. This close became shrouded in myth and urban legend, with terrifying tales of the ghosts that remained at the close that they knew so well in life. When it was opened as a tourist attraction in 2003, it found new levels of infamy and is now regarded as one of the most haunted places in an incredibly haunted city. I investigated this location in 2012 while writing my book Ghosts of Edinburgh Find out exactly what happened on that dark October evening as tonight, join me as we once again venture below the streets of Edinburgh and visit Mary King's Close. Welcome to episode 18 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week we head back to Edinburgh and ask just how haunted is Mary King's Close?
Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. On the 13th of October 2012, I was headed north to Edinburgh to investigate Mary King's Close while writing my book, Ghosts of Edinburgh. I was accompanied as usual by my good friends John Crozier and Rich Stogo, and my younger brother Tom. What happened that night, including the detailed history and ghost stories of Mary King's Close, appear in chapter 3 of the book, a chapter called Don't Lick the Wallpaper. I will now read an abridged version of the chapter, so you can accompany me on the investigation and hear every aspect in detail of what was guaranteed to be a memorable night for all involved. John Blackburn from Mysteria and Ian Lawman are going to take you on a ghost hunting weekend of epic proportions. An Edinburgh weekend that will blow your mind. Do you have what it takes to survive a weekend exploring Edinburgh's dark secrets with Mysteria paranormal events? Please note, this event is not for those of a nervous disposition. That was what I had read on Mysteria's website about investigations that they had arranged at two of Edinburgh's scariest places. And the please note warning was in a red font, which I took to mean it was going to be scary. Very, very scary. These guys weren't messing about. The four of us had joined the Mysteria guys at York Guildhall the previous year, and we were lucky enough to be invited to join them again this evening for the second of a two-night investigation the previous night they'd been at the Edinburgh Vaults. We had been excitedly counting down the months, then weeks, then days, and it was finally here. I couldn't wait. This would be the third different season in which we'd headed to Edinburgh to tackle the city spooks. It was autumn. Halloween was just around the corner, the leaves had begun to turn, and the dark nights had noticeably drawn in over the last few weeks. As I left home and walked towards my car, my backpack slung over my shoulder, sleeping bag under my arm, and my coat clutched in my hand. I paused to look up at the blue sky above. There wasn't a cloud in sight, and all in all it was a really pleasant day. I pressed the button on the central lock and key fob, and the lights on my car flashed to let me know that she was unlocked and ready to go. A short drive later, I had collected the first member of my fearless ghost-seeking unit, my younger brother Tom. As he climbed into the passenger seat, he took his shoes off and put his absurdly long legs up on the dashboard. By 12.30pm, three quarters of the Geordie Ghostbusters were reunited as my good friend John Crozier was now sat in the back of the car. Ten minutes later, Rich Stoko climbed in behind me and for the first time in over three months, the four of us were back together and off to do what we do best. Dare to seek out the dead in some of the most chilling places in the UK. I hit the A1 and we had a fairly lengthy drive north. Not to Edinburgh initially, but to Musselburgh, where we had booked our accommodation. We had lots to catch up on, so the chat flowed freely as the miles raced by. As we reached Berwick-upon-Tweed, Tom asked if I'd stop at Mackie D's, as he fancied a bite to eat. Rich piped up that he could use the toilet if I was stopping. At the roundabout ahead to take the first exit, a familiar Irish lilt reverberated through the speakers. 
It was my Tom-Tom, my faithful guide on many long journeys over the last few years. I picked the Irish voice, as I was curious as to how he'd say third, and never got around to changing it. And now I didn't want to change it, as we became firm travel companions. I didn't take the first exit. I disobeyed him by taking the third exit, turning right towards the golden arches of McDonald's. Turn around, he said in his usual patient manner. I ignored him turning into a busy car park, made busier by an enormous snake and queue of cars waiting for the drive through Turn around, he said again, two pre-recorded words that somehow seemed more demanding than his last command. Rather than face being told off for a third time by Tom Tom, I turned him off. As we drove out the car park, I turned the Tom Tom back on. At the roundabout, take the second exit, he said. I took the second exit. I had appeased his Celtic wrath, and we were firm friends once more. As we crossed the border into Scotland, the sun vanished behind a cloud, and the sky turned dark. I noticed the majority of cars heading south on the opposite carriageway seemed to have their lights on, so I assumed it would get worse the further north we got. It didn't take long to realise I was right, and it started to rain. The BBC website had assured me that this wouldn't be the case in Edinburgh. In fact, it had said there was 0% chance. So I was confident that we'd leave the rain, which had now became a downpour, behind before we reached our destination. We arrived at the Drummore campsite in Musselburgh, just before 3pm, and it was a bit chilly, but it was dry and looked like it hadn't seen any of the rain that we'd driven through and left behind 30 or so miles back. We checked in, and a guy in a little motorised cart guided us to our boffy, named Bewley Boffy. It was probably colder in the boffy than it was outside, but we'd all brought sleeping bags, pillows and plenty of thick clothes to wear for bed when we returned which wasn't likely to be before 4am. I turned the heater up high and within 5 minutes it was pumping out some much needed warmth. I sat on the end of my mattress and held my hands over the small electric heater mounted on the wall, rubbing my hands together, like those homeless people standing at a brazier you see in Hollywood movies. We changed into our ghost hunting gear, as we wouldn't return before our investigation despite it being over 8 hours away, and we rearranged our bags, leaving behind anything we wouldn't need. We also layered up in preparation for our afternoon in Edinburgh in autumn. We arrived in Edinburgh just before 4pm, and we looked for somewhere to park which would be near to the venue we were investigating tonight, as we didn't want to be wandering for miles in the wee small hours. We ended up parking along from Edinburgh Dungeon, in a tricky little space with an awkwardly placed lamppost and extraordinarily high curbs. Just the right height to cause serious damage to the alloy wheels of drivers unable to parallel park. I had no intention of smashing in the wheels of my very own mystery machine, and reversed in like a seasoned pro. We crossed the road and passed the sportsman bar, taking a shortcut up an alleyway with a sign above it saying Royal Mile and Castle. It was a steep flight of stairs up a dark narrow alleyway. We passed a couple of small bars, the second of which was called the Jingle and Geordie. We came out onto a busy Royal Mile, and headed for the bar which had became our local, in much the same way that the Cross Keys did during our time in York. We headed for Frankenstein's on the George IV Bridge. Frankie's, as we affectionately refer to it, was fairly quiet, certainly much quieter than we'd seen it on previous Saturday afternoon visits, and we picked a high table with four bar stools placed around it. 
We chatted and laughed like four mates, sitting in pubs all over the land will have been doing at exactly the same time. The conversation turned to, as you can imagine, a fairly regular topic when the four of us come together. Ghosts. And in particular, the evening that lay ahead. Tonight would see us joining Mysteria Paranormal Events and two dozen members of the public to investigate a location famed the world over for the ghosts said to lurk in the shadowy underground closes. In the 17th century, Mary King's Close and adjacent closes were at the heart of Edinburgh's busiest and most vibrant streets, and they were open to the skies above, busy with traders selling their goods to the old town's inhabitants. A series of lanes and alleyways grew out of the long narrow streets with tenement houses on each side, stretching up to seven storeys high. These are the wines or closes where old town folk made their homes. Closes were named after the most prominent citizen or the most commonly found business to be on the close. Mary King was the daughter of advocate Alexander King and was a successful businesswoman in her own right, trading in fabrics for a living. By the 1930s she was a widow and owned several properties in the close and lived at the top of one of the closes with her four children. It was highly unusual for a close to be named after a woman at that time indicating Mary standing in the town up until her death in 1644. In 1645, the bubonic plague struck this close-knit community, most likely brought into the city from Europe via the port at Leith. There is an unsubstantiated claim that the local council decided to contain the plague by incarcerating the victims, bricking up the close for several years and leaving them to die inside. It's doubtful this actually happened, although the Black Death still caused panic and misery, and decimated the population. Sufferers would display white flags in their window, to indicate that the Black Death had found its way into their home. They would then place themselves and their families into quarantine. Essential supplies would be delivered to the sufferers daily, and the plague doctor, Dr George Ray, would make regular visits for draining of buboes. It would be a terrifying time for everyone, especially children, made worse by Dr Ray tending them in their sickbed, while wearing his fearsome plague doctor suit, with his beak mask stuffed with sweet and strong smelling herbs, such as lavender, as it was mistakenly believed that the bad smell was how the plague was transferred. The close was partially demolished, with the lower floors of Mary King's close and four of the surrounding closes, used as the foundation for the Royal Exchange which was built in 1753, and is now called the City Chambers. Over 250 years later, the floors below remain largely unchanged. Despite the city changing above, Mary King's close was being covered, piece by piece, condemning it into darkness. The final surviving business in the close didn't close until the very end of the 19th century. Andrew Chesney was a sawmaker, and was the last of three generations of Chesneys to live in the close. He operated his business until 1897, when the council gave him £400, which is the equivalent of £33,800 today, to move out so they could enlarge the Royal Exchange. Chesney was an old man by this point, and he took the money and moved into Coburn Street. This enabled the council to shut off the close completely to the sky above, and hide it beneath ground, to be quickly forgotten by the people of the continuously developing city. 
During the Second World War, the underground close was reopened for the first time in over 40 years to be used as an air raid shelter. Today what remains of Mary King's Close is a spooky warren of dark, claustrophobic, underground streets and spaces, a far cry from the Royal Mile above, shrouded in myth and mystery with blood-curdling tales of ghosts and murders. It was opened as a commercial tourist attraction in April 2003 and set out as historically accurate of life in Edinburgh between the 16th and 19th century. You enter the attraction through Warrenston Close and Writers Court, where a replica sign for Mary King's Close has been hung. The tour allows visitors access to the ruins of several underground close remains. Mary King's, Pearson's, Stewart's and Allen's Closes. In the last two decades, it has grown into one of Edinburgh's top tourist attractions, held largely by its infamous reputation, not only as one of the most haunted places in Edinburgh, but as one of the most haunted places on the planet. The Close has had a reputation for strange happenings since at least the 17th century, with stories of plague victims that died here coming back to haunt the places that they knew in life. Sounds of a party or a crowded tavern are often heard, and footsteps are heard pacing the Close from time to time, believed to be that of one of the Close's last residents, Mr Chesney. Other people have heard scratching coming from inside a chimney, where a child chimney sweep is said to have gotten stuck. His desperate screams were ignored, and he was left to slowly die. By far the best known tale is that of little Annie, who haunts the room named for her. Historically, there is no proof whatsoever that she ever existed. She first came into the public's consciousness in 1992, when Japanese psychic Aiko Gibo visited the close. She had been fairly uninterested in the tour until she reached a small room where she was suddenly struck by an overwhelming feeling of sickness, hunger and cold. She initially refused to enter the room, but when she did, she said she claimed to make contact with the spirit of an eight-year-old girl called Annie. Annie contracted the plague and her parents left her quarantined in the house where she died scared and alone. She was heartbroken and didn't even have her beloved teddy bear to hold. The psychic suggested leaving a cuddly toy from one of the many souvenir shops on the Royal Mile and leaving it for Annie. Ever since, people from all over the globe have left gifts in Annie's room, including dolls and other toys as well as money. The cash is regularly collected and given to the Sick Kids Friends Foundation in honour of little Annie. Despite the uncertainty around Annie's existence, there can be no denying the inexplicable experiences visitors have had in Annie's room. People have been overcome with emotion, and some have even begun crying, involuntarily. Visitors have heard disembodied whispering, and some have even claimed to see the ghost of a young girl. Mary King's Close is also the organisation which funds and manages the annual Mary King's Ghost Fest in Edinburgh. This unique and popular, award-winning, 10-day city-wide festival in May each year sets out to explore and uncover more about the dark tales and strange paranormal activity for which Edinburgh has become internationally renowned. During Ghost Fest 2008, an amazing photograph was captured at Mary King's Close, which would fascinate paranormal enthusiasts worldwide and back up the location standing as one of the most active places in the world. You can see this photograph 
over on the Instagram. At around midnight on Saturday the 10th of May, the general manager, Stephen Spencer, activated an infrared camera which had been installed a couple of months earlier to take photographs of tourists in the close as a keepsake for them to take away as a reminder of their visit. He only activated it to check it had been turned off, and it's a good job that it hadn't, as the image contained what appeared to be a ghostly figure standing right in front of the archway. Mary King's close spokeswoman, Lisa Helby, said at the time, There's a trigger for the camera on the wall, and we usually press it last thing at night to check that everything has been switched off properly. We'd had some events for the Ghost Fest on this particular night, and when they'd finished, Stephen pressed the button before coming back up into the office. He was the only person down there, and wasn't in the shot himself, so it was a total surprise when this image came through. If everything had been switched off properly, the photograph wouldn't have been taken at all, so it was a complete fluke. It's not been tampered with or altered in any way. It's exactly what was taken at that moment in time. It definitely looks like a ghostly person in the distance, and we've had quite a few visitors who have mentioned seeing a heavyset figure in that location before. Richard Felix, who used to be the historian on Living TV's Most Haunted, was in Edinburgh for Ghostfest, and he saw the image and he said he felt that the photograph is convincing, and added, I don't think it has been doctored, and it's one of the best examples of this kind of phenomenon that I've came across during my career. It's especially interesting because the figure appears to have the same dimensions as other apparitions reported there over the past few years. The photograph was not the only piece of compelling evidence to come out of that year's ghost fest. Richard Felix joined a local paranormal team, Ghostfinder Scotland, to perform a series of experiments at Mary King's Close. One experiment involved planting digital voice recorders while members of the team and members of staff asked a series of questions in the hope of achieving responses from the Close's spectral residents. When the recordings were played back, replies to questions were clearly audible. One of the loudest was recorded in the house of Andrew Chesney. One of the staff asked, Are you sick of seeing us yet? and the reply recorded said, Yes, I am. In another recording, staff asked, Would you like us to leave here now? And a voice replied, Just get out. No one is sure who the figure in the photograph is, but it's been speculated that it may be Andrew Chesney himself. Another school of thought is that it may be that of Major Tom Weir, a prominent figure in the 17th century. He was a soldier turned occultist, and was garroted and burned alive at the Galilee in 1670 for witchcraft. While awaiting his execution, he made a further confession of incest with his sister, Jean Weir, who had been sentenced to death at the same time for being his partner in the dark arts, and was hanged at the grass market. Before the ghost hunt, which would kick off at 10.30pm, I'd booked us onto one of the tours which would run throughout the day and early evening at the Real Mary King's Close, and our tour would begin at 7.15pm. With 30 minutes to go before our tour would begin, we polished off our drinks and left Frankenstein's. By now it was pitch black outside, and although it had stopped raining, the temperature had dropped dramatically. I zipped my coat up as high as it would go against the biting chill, and we headed back to the Royal Mile. By 7.15pm, we were in a group of around 20 people being checked into the tour, led by our tour guide by the name of Megan. I'd never actually been into Mary King's Close before, and had been under the impression from what I'd read that it can be cold in the close. 
but that couldn't have been further from the truth. We'd all layered up and it was red hot down there, before long I'd taken my coat off and Tom and John had followed suit. After an hour, the tour came to an end, and it had been thoroughly enjoyable. Stories in the history had been well told, and we thanked our guide. We now had a couple of hours to kill before we would return to Mary King's Close, so we decided to return to Frankenstein's for a drink, in the hope of a sit-down. There were bouncers on the door, so we thought we might not get in dressed in our ghost hunting gear, but there were no problems, and we were wished a pleasant evening. It wasn't too busy, but it was very, very loud, and there were no empty seats. We stood at the bar, ordered some soft drinks, and surveyed the clientele, which had changed radically since we'd left only a couple of hours earlier. There was a DJ up in a booth behind the bar, and we'd walked in to Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. As the music faded, there was a crash of thunder piped through the speaker system, and a loud groan from above us. Everybody looked up and watched for several minutes as Frankenstein's monster came to life. Sound effects were played over eerie music, as a life-size Frankenstein's monster travelled along hydraulic rails on a metal bed, and then was lowered to around 10 feet off the ground, as the music roared to a crescendo, as the enormous green monster sat up and looked around. He lay back down, and the lights dimmed, and he travelled back to the position in which he started. We chatted about the tour, and about the night that lay ahead, and when 9.45pm came around, we left Frankenstein's once more. We stepped out into the night air, which was bitterly cold, so we were glad it was only a short walk. We bypassed the entrance to Mary King's Close, as there was a Starbucks just beyond, and Tom and Rich wanted to buy a hot drink to warm up. We walked back into Mary King's Close at 10pm, and the gift shop, which was to be our base for the evening, was already full of our fellow ghost hunters. I picked out John Blackburn, the owner of Mysteria Paranormal Events, and went over and introduced myself. We had talked on the phone several times before, but never met face to face. I introduced him to the lads, and thanked him for allowing us to join the ghost hunt tonight. At 10.15pm, John from Mysteria spoke up to get everybody's attention and welcomed everybody back for a second evening as they'd all been together the evening before at the Edinburgh Southbridge vaults. There were 27 members of the public, including the four of us. There was also John and two mediums, Ian Lawman, the self-proclaimed bad boy of the psychic world, well known from TV programmes such as I'm Famous and Frightened, Most Haunted, and now, reading this in 2023, He's probably best known for help, My House is Haunted. He was joined by medium Brian Boyle, who hails from Fife, a little over 25 miles north of Edinburgh. A few members of staff were on duty for the evening, and were gathered behind the customer service counter. John pointed us out, lurking at the back, to everybody else, and explained why we were there. He added that I'm donating all of my royalties from sales of Ghosts of Edinburgh to charity, and we were given a very kind round of applause. We were given 10 minutes to organise ourselves and get a drink or nip to the toilet before we would head into the close for a medium guided walk round of the areas that we would have access to. A bespectacled guy with a very gentle Scottish accent came over to meet us. He bore a striking resemblance to Curly Watts from Coronation Street. And as we chatted, it was clear that he was a really nice guy. He had all manner of pendants on black string around his neck, seemingly gems and symbols which he felt may protect him on the investigation. Rich had been at the toilet as we'd exchanged pleasantries with Curly, 
and when he returned he explained that he thought he'd had his first paranormal experience of the evening. He recounted the tale for us. He was at the toilet when he heard a funny noise, accompanied by a strange fragrance in the air. He turned around and felt a fine mist on his face. He stood quietly waiting to see if anything further happened. Then he realised that it had been one of those automatic air fresheners that go off every now and then in public lavatories. 10.30pm came round, and the brave ghost hunters headed en masse down the darkened staircase for our first journey underground into the incredibly haunted Mary King's Close. The first room was just down the first flight of stairs, and was the first room on the tour we'd taken earlier. A small room made up to look like a typical house on the close. Ian Lawman addressed the eager ghost hunters, none of which were first-timers at all tackled the Edinburgh vault the previous evening. He said, Look around you when you get into a room. Look for light sources and identify where shadows will be cast. Don't get caught out thinking you've seen a shadow moving when it's perfectly explainable. It's human nature to jump to conclusions when you're in a scary place. And it doesn't get much scarier than Mary King's Close. Ian asked, How does everyone feel? Dizzy, complained one lady. Anxious, shouted out Curly while he fingered his lucky pendants. I feel as if I'm on a boat rocking, said a lady behind me. Ian agreed with the rocking sensation, saying he'd felt unsteady on his feet, because the floor, although it looks new, wouldn't have been the original floor. It would have been perhaps a different floor, lower down, making him feel like he's sinking. I have a burning chest, my heart's racing, and I feel a little tipsy, almost like I'm drunk, he continued. And I can also sense a man who smells quite herby, like he smells of herbs. I'm not sure if he's a doctor or something similar. I won't say too much, but we'll see if he makes an appearance later on. Ian stepped back, giving the floor to Brian Boyle to step forward, and in his strong Scottish brogue, he gave us his first thoughts on this area of Mary King's Close. I can't help it but smile to myself when Ian was talking, as I was also getting the floor, but I was seeing it as brick. I'm also seeing two bowls with money and changing coins of some kind. He left it at that, short but sweet. Ian explained why they were being a little vague. We're intentionally not telling you too much, as we want you to have your own experiences, and we don't want to influence you. We moved into the next area. As we walked, everyone was commenting on how warm it was down here. It was uncomfortably warm. I didn't have a coat on, I was just wearing a t-shirt, but the heat was stifling, made worse by over 30 of us in such a confined space. The next room was the cow shed. Ian asked us to spread out around the room and form a huge circle, turn our torches off and see how this room felt. How do you feel in here, he asked. There was initial hesitancy, then somebody said, better than the last room, and there was a chorus of voices agreeing. Ian responded, does anyone feel worse? Yeah, I feel worse, confirmed a quiet female voice. I feel dizzy, another lady added. Nervous, said a guy behind me. Cow shit, Curly cried out. For me, said Ian quietly, I'm trying to get warm. I feel really, really cold. 
and in reality it's warm, so I know it's spirit energy that's causing it. I also feel like I'm giving birth, or about to give birth. I get a kind of cattly feel, like someone who would tend to animals, cows or sheep. Brian spoke. I agree with some of what's been said. I feel a bit disorientated. I'm also aware of a strong stench, like the lady said. It was me, Curly interrupted. I'm a man. Brian continued. Is that a doorway over there? He pointed in the darkness towards the doorway into another room. Everybody said yes. Someone's watching me from that doorway. It's a woman with a bonnet on. I'm also getting animals. I know you said cows, but I don't get that. I get horses. An American lady spoke up in agreement with Brian. Yeah, I'm getting like animals here. An American guy then spoke up. It was the lady's son and we'd later find out he was named John. I get a strong urge to look at the floor. I feel like I should be looking at the floor for something. John Blackburn sounded concerned when he spoke. I do get a nervy feeling here. I'm a little on edge and I feel the further into this place we get, the worse it's going to get. The playroom, as I'll refer to it, was through the door that Brian had pointed out a few minutes earlier. It's a small room which looks through a dirty window onto Mary King's close below. There are bunk beds in the room containing mannequins of a family with small children suffering from the plague. They are being treated by a doctor wearing a plague doctor suit, including the famous beak mask. Ian spoke first in here. It's definitely a different energy in here, isn't it? Sickness, Curly blurted out. I'm terrified, almost verging on panicking and getting out, American John said looking around to see if anybody else felt as he did. I feel that there were sick people in here, shouted the American woman. Burning all down one leg, cried out another voice. I feel like I'm moving down, like I'm being dragged down, said somebody else. It's home, but I want to get out, our very own Rich chipped in. Okay, yeah, well, I'm getting a lot of these sensations, Ian said calmly. I still feel like I'm sinking down into the floor. I feel quite cramped in here. I'm not sure if the room was used for storage at some point. I feel quite fluey, quite feverish, like my lungs are filling up with fluid. I have major health issues. I'm also aware that there are definitely spirit children here. Brian spoke. My left arm is itchy. My neck is itchy, said a clearly astonished woman. I feel like my arms should have scars on them, Brian continued. He added, I'm getting three names in this room. The first is Jonathan Swift. The second and third are just first names, Elizabeth and Thomas. They met their end, Curly shouted. They were brought here to die. We were led by a member of staff to the next area for us to check out during our pre-investigation walkabout. It's a room known officially as Ghosts and Ghoulies, and it is a long room with a wooden floor and seats in, which we'd sat in earlier to watch a short video telling us a ghost story from the early days of Mary King's, when we were on our earlier tour. It's quite negative in here for me. How do you feel? Ian asked the group. I feel angry for some reason, said a lady with a fairly posh London accent. I feel threatened, like somebody wants to go for my throat, said John Blackburn, holding his throat as he spoke. I've been made aware of a lady, Brian spoke quietly. 
Elizabeth, who is in the last room. I see her with a basket of bread, going around the close, giving this bread out. Also getting a male. He's a drunk, staggering around, being ignored by everyone. It's funny you say drunk. Ian looked at Brian as he explained. As I saw a man swaying, but I wasn't sure if he was drunk or ill. I also see a man being dragged by two other men. He's dead, and they've got one arm each dragging them behind him. My chest has become really tight, coughing blood. Oh, I can now hear aircraft above me and the sounds of bombs dropping. I'm not sure if during the war this was used as an air raid shelter of some kind. There's a lot of movement in this room. It could be very interesting in here. There's movement everywhere, exclaimed Curly, clutching onto his protective pendants as if his life depended on it. We left this room in single file and made our way to the room best known by paranormal enthusiasts, Annie's room. We didn't enter Annie's room as there was too many of us, so we gathered in the area outside. John asked the group to be very careful of the walls and the low ceilings as they came into this area. He added that some of the walls in here were made of the ash of the bodies of criminals, mixed into the plaster. Rich was the first person to speak. I'm getting a really sweet smell here. It's really sickly though, added Curly, eager to express his thoughts. American John added that he was getting a spicy smell. Just as it was in danger of sounding like a wine taste in evening, John Blackburn said quietly, I'm really nervous. I feel like there's somebody in that dark doorway to that room over there. He shone his torch on the doorway he was talking about, and it was the doorway to Annie's room. There was somebody stood in the doorway, and they were now illuminated in the LED glow from his torch. That figure was me. Rob, you are not alone in that doorway. There's definitely someone else there. Whatever happens, if anything, let us all know straight away. He continued, I know the stories people generally know about that room, but I'm getting something different in there, another really strong male energy. Brian had picked up on something different. I'm feeling a family with five children. I get the name Morgan, which I think is one of the children. Ian said, I see a woman sat on the floor, and she's crushing herbs on the floor. Not to eat, but to cover the smell of something up. As Ian spoke, he had his eyes closed, and was acting out the crushing of herbs with his hands. I also feel she's going to use some of these herbs to make a broth for her daughter who was ill. Sadly, it didn't work, and she passed away at a young age. We passed through Annie's room in single file, checking it out quickly as the group was far too large to go in together. The next room on our tour had a wooden floor and four large illustrated boards detailing the lives of the people who had lived in the closes. By now, Ian didn't have to ask how people felt. They began to shout out how they felt upon entering this new space. Wobbly. I'm swaying. Yeah, swaying like I want to fall over, agreed Curly. I've got stomach ache. I've got a very coppery taste in my mouth, almost like blood, said American John, who twisted his face in disgust as if to let us know just how bad this taste was. John Blackburn was happier in this room. I'm feeling light, a lot less intimidated than I have done elsewhere. Ian agreed. Yeah, I feel good in here. I've nothing more to add, really. With Brian having nothing to add, and no one else speaking up, we wanted to maximise our time, so move to the next area, Mary King's Close itself. However, we weren't going to include the close in our walkabout tour, 
It was merely a stop-off for a room they considered to be far more interesting, a room we'd not seen during the daytime tour, Chesney's house. John explained, On the daytime tour, you never go into this house because the floor is badly damaged. So when we go in, we need to be careful, and we can only allow eight people in at any one time. Also be careful of the walls. As back in those days, when they fixed wallpaper to the walls, they did it with an arsenic solution, as they stopped bacteria and mould growing. Do not touch the walls. We waited patiently. People were huddled around in their small groups of friends as the first group went into Chesney's house. Two groups of eight had been in and out of Chesney's house and we joined the final group. Ian and Brian were waiting inside and as I entered I spied a sign above the lavatory proudly boasting of Chesney's house being privileged to have the first flushing toilet in the close. Feel free to lick the wallpaper, Ian joked to us and the four girls who made up our group. We spent a few minutes wandering around the small house, treading carefully on the badly dilapidated floor. Ian asked the four of us about the book project, and I introduced myself. Both he and Brian showed a keen interest and were kind enough to wish me well. After an hour and ten minutes on the uncomfortably warm walk around, we resurfaced in the gift shop. We had a little bit of downtime, so I mingled and had a drink. John explained that we would split into three groups and rotate between three areas that had been identified as being the most promising. Group 1 would start in the cow shed with Ian. Group 2 would go to Chesney's house with Brian. And Group 3, of which we were members, would go with John to Annie's room in the area around it. After 30 minutes in each area, the team leaders would stay still and the groups would rotate. At midnight, we broke into our groups and one group at a time we headed to our designated areas. Our group had nine investigators in it, and we stood in the area outside of Annie's room, with metal supports holding the roof in place, where we'd earlier been told to watch the delicate walls. John asked us to stand in a circle, and as best we could stand boy-girl, boy-girl, as this would help energy to flow. He then asked us to hold hands. At this point John explained... For the benefit of the four of us who weren't there the evening before, that he works with spirit energy, and his style of mediumship is different to that of Ian and Brian. With our torches off, and everyone holding hands with strangers of the opposite sex, John stood in the centre of the circle we'd formed, and began to do his thing. I want you all to imagine that up above my head is a crystalline ball of energy, and this ball of energy is slowly spinning around, Imagine you can feel the heat of this energy spinning around. What I want you to do now is take an umbilical cord of energy from this ball of energy and take the cord to the centre of your forehead. Now the centre of your forehead is your chakra point. Some people call it your third eye. You've got two other chakra points you'll be using tonight and they are in the palms of each hand. That's one of the reasons we're holding hands. The other reasons we're holding hands is so that if you're touched, you know that it can't be somebody else from the group, as you're all holding hands and I'm here in the centre. Imagine that you're drawing this energy from your third eye down into your stomach now, and that you can see the white energy moving down into your stomach. You might even feel a tingling sensation in your stomach now. Can you feel it? Nobody replied. Talk to me. Can anyone feel that? 
A quiet female voice said yes in the darkness. Now the energy is building up, getting stronger and stronger, and you're taking it up from your stomach to your left shoulder. You can now see this energy flowing down your left arm, and you're now passing it into the hand of the person to your left, and the person to your right has passed their energy into your right hand. Imagine this energy flowing through your body, and then pass it on to the person to your left again, and do this over and over again, until we have a circle of energy flowing out through all of you, faster and faster and faster. Concentrate on that now. We've only got 30 minutes in this room, so we want to build up as much energy as we can. I will now call out the spirit. Open the door, lower the temperature and bring yourself through. Come on, open the door, lower the temperature and bring yourself through. We are summoning all the energies from Mary King's Close to come through and work with us. Come closer. Guys, keep your feet about six inches apart, and in your mind, ask, show me which way is yes, and you'll feel yourself swaying. Then ask which way is no, and you'll move in a different direction. Come forward, spirits. Are you going to communicate with us? If so, please pull us in the direction of yes. Come forward, spirits. Are you going to communicate with us? If so, please pull in the direction of yes. We were asked what we felt. I felt nothing. But three female voices, one of which was American, quickly confirmed that they had felt they had swayed in the direction which indicated yes. John asked, Do you feel any tinglier than you did before? A few people nodded, and there was a murmur of agreement. Rob, John said, put me on the spot. I felt nothing, so that's what I said. So he asked if he could work with me, asking me to join him in the centre of the circle. I wasn't sure what it would involve, but I agreed. I let go of the hand of the lady stood either side of me and took a stride forward. The circle closed behind me. John positioned me opposite him, within the circle, and I stood still, hands down by my side. Guys in the circle, keep the energy flowing, spinning faster and faster through you. Keep your hands together, but make sure that your arms are loose and floppy. Watch in the centre of the circle, use your night vision, and watch between where Rob and I are standing. Spirits, I want you to take a hand from the circle and pull a hand into the centre of the circle for me, please. Bring it forward, bring it forward, bring it forward. Bring a hand towards me now. Bring it to me, bring it to me. He continued to say bring it to me repeatedly, getting louder and faster for several minutes. Then one of the female links in our circle stepped towards John. This spurred him on. Come closer, lower the temperature, bring the hands forward. Guys, you should see the centre of the circle between me and Rob getting darker and darker. Can you see that? The majority of the group gave a synchronised yes although Rich, Tom and John said nothing. That's the spirit energy joining us. When the spirit energy appears, it can get much darker. Come on, bring those hands forward. Bring them closer to me. He said the same sentence repeatedly, and the circle began to close as clasped hands were seemingly dragging people towards us. I felt a fist strike me firmly in the small of my back. I turned around and came face to face with the American woman, she apologised and then protested her innocence, as it was her hand that had hit me. 
but she hadn't done it. They had. The circle got smaller and smaller, and John requested the spirit energy to continue to bring the hands forward, but now make them go up as well, making the hands and the arms go higher and higher. I looked 360 degrees at the eight faces that made up the circle, and there was a mixture of fear and bewilderment, as not only did the circle carry on getting smaller, but arms began to rise. Sixteen arms connected to eight interlocked fists, rising steadily into the air. I turned around to see how the guys behind me were getting on, and received one of those rising fists straight in my face. I was stood in the dark, surrounded by strangers, and had been punched twice. I could have saved myself travelling all the way to Edinburgh, and experienced exactly the same thing in the big market in Newcastle on a Saturday night. The circle was now almost completely closed. I had, mostly, strangers pressed up against me, and I was stood facing our guide John in the centre, arms and fists towering above us. Okay, this has been a fantastic result so far. Thank you for this, spirits. Now show yourself. Show your face in the centre of the circle. John encouraged us all to watch between the two of us, and wait for the face to appear. Everyone watched intently, expectantly, but no one saw anything. John wasn't put off by this, and suggested that we try something different. Thank you for working with us, Spirit. We are now going to move into the next room, and I would like you to come with us. Come and join us in the room where the toys are. I want to take you into the next room, Spirit. John explained that since the spirit would be leaving the circle and moving to the next room, everyone should find their arms and hands returning to normal. Before we all move, I'd like a volunteer. I'll do it, said Tom, almost before John had finished his request. John asked me to rejoin the circle and take Tom's place. He then asked us all to turn around where we were stood. So the circle remained, but we were facing outwards rather than looking at John who was stood in the centre. Tom was tasked with standing in the doorway of Annie's room. I was facing the doorway to Annie's room, so I could see Tom take up his place, and then heard John behind me speak loudly. There's someone in the doorway of the room you're standing in. They're blocking your way. I want you to push them out of the way. Push past him and come to me. Tom, do you feel anything at all? Can you tell us what you're feeling, if anything? John asked expectantly. I feel fine, came Tom's comfortable response. Although I can feel almost like static around my head, he added. Come on, force your way past him. Push him out the way. Push forward. Come closer, spirit, please. Tom said, my legs feel quite heavy now. Push him towards me now. Push him towards me now, John repeated over and over and over. After another 30 seconds or so, Tom said his legs felt even heavier. John persevered, but Tom didn't budge. Time was pressing, so we all relocated in Annie's room. It was a much more confined space, but the ten of us fitted relatively comfortably. John wanted to keep the energy flowing, so had us all join hands again. He told us we would try transfiguration, adding that we have an auric field around all of us. And when we work with energy, we can transpose the spirit's face over ours onto our own auric field. In order for John to allow his face to be taken over, he said we'd need to change the energy in the room, change the vibe. How he suggested we do this is that everybody would hum. He would point to each one of us in turn 
and we had to hum for as long as we could. That way, even though you'd need to take a breath, it would sound like one long continuous hum. The origin of this dates back many thousands of years when the Tibetan monks harnessed the eternal Om, and they worked with energy all the time. They used healing energy, but we were going to be harnessing the same kind of energy. So John pointed to each of us in turn, and before long the hum filled the room like we were surrounded by a swarm of angry bees, the vibrations of the sound echoing all around us. As we continued to hum like the nation's worst choir warming up for a Britain's Got Talent audition, John once again asked the energy to join us. Once he was satisfied that the spirit energy was with us, he asked us to stop humming, and the tiny room fell silent. John stood in the corner of the room and we broke our circle to gather round. He said he would close his eyes and illuminate his face slightly with a red torch. We were to watch and see if it changed as he willed the spirits to use his auric field to show their own face. We waited with bated breath and watched his eerily lit face. No one spoke until John finished and asked us what we saw. I personally hadn't seen any change although his face was very dimly lit, and we were all watching so intensely that I could imagine that it would be easy, especially so late at night, for your eyes to play tricks on you. One lady said that she thought his face had turned darker, and someone else had said that they saw his eyes open, even though they could tell they were still closed at the same time. No one else had seen anything. We had overran our allotted 30 minutes at Annie's room by almost 15 minutes, so it was time for our group to rotate, and our nine strong ghost hunting team, the snappily named Group 3, were on the move to spend some time with Brian Boyle and Andrew from the Real Mary King's Close staff, over at Chesney's house. We spread out carefully and evenly around the room. We had to be wary of touching the walls or stepping into a hole. As soon as Brian spoke, it was apparent this would be a very different half hour, despite both John and Brian being mediums. He asked us, would you like to try calling out first, or would you like to do a circle and I can do some mediumship and see who's here with us? An American woman suggested calling out first. Okay, Brian said. Can you all stand still? This floor is very noisy and we need to listen carefully and be patient as we wait between questions. If there are any astral beings or any spirit beings here with us, can you come forward please? Can you make a noise or touch somebody gently? We waited silently for almost a minute, which is a long time to remain silent. But it paid off when we heard a series of footsteps on the creaky floor in the room with us. Everyone looked at one another, and Brian, as if he knew it had been coming, said, Told you. Now you know why I said to wait. Any astral beings or spirit people, could you make a noise? Bang on the door, touch someone. We waited, but there was no response. I know this room is active with spirit people. I can see you. We mean respect, so will you please come forward and let us know. There was no response. Unannounced, the American lady said, Can you please come back now? We've come a long way and we want you to show us why you're here. No response. Brian stepped back in and said earlier he'd been aware of spirits in the room, but he wasn't anymore. The American woman nodded and said, It seems very flat, don't it, y'all? There was some agreement, and then Brian was asked what the previous group had experienced in there. 
He was about to explain, but no sooner had he started talking than he was rudely interrupted by someone in our group whispering and talking over him. It was our very own John. John turned to Tom Rich and I as we stood listening to Brian. He whispered, Did one of you poke me? Tom was first to protest his innocence and pointed out his arms were folded and had been since they took their positions around the room. Rich and I both said we hadn't touched him. By now, people had realised that the rude Geordie lads were having their very own conversation and even Brian had stopped talking. Are you alright? he asked, clearly aware that we were discussing a happening. It felt like someone touched me, John said to everyone. What's your name and would you be happy for me to ask them to do it again, Brian said, seemingly buoyed by this occurrence, when things had seemed fairly quiet. I'm John, yeah, that's fine. You just touched John, can you do it again? Everyone waited, eyes fixed on John. Nothing. Brian seemed puzzled by this, so grilled John further. Where did it touch you, and did it feel like a definite physical touch? Yeah, it was on my arm, just here, and it was a definite prod. That's why I immediately blamed Rob. He pointed at me. Everyone laughed except me. Brian seemed convinced that one of the spirit people were to blame, so continued to attempt to make contact. Spirit person, you touch John. Can you do it again, or can you touch somebody else? Nothing happened. Brian returned to telling us what he experienced with the previous group. He went through a whole range of emotions. Angry, anxious, scared. Then he felt like he was going to well up and cry. It was at this point he picked up on a male who he believed to be Mr Chesney for how the house was named. And he found him to be a very angry individual. Since it was so quiet he suggested that we form a circle to try and stir up some energy in the room. He said it would be best if we were to stand boy girl boy girl just as John had asked us to do during our previous vigil. He explained that men and women carry different charges just like the positive and negative terminals of a battery and this helps the energy to flow. He asked if we'd have anything against him saying a prayer of protection. No one did. Once he'd finished his prayer he asked if anyone felt anything. Tom said that he felt static around his hair as he'd done in the previous room making his hair almost want to stand up. Also, he said his ears felt tingly. Brian said this could be a sign of energy, so after asking Tom's name, he asked the spirit people to show themselves. When this failed, he asked them to show themselves to his psychic sight. He said, it's important that when it's quiet, you don't let it get you down. Patience is vital. It was all very quiet. However, Brian continued to request the astral beings to use our energy to make themselves known. He continued for several minutes, while the rest of us stood silently, waiting, hoping. Brian stopped asking, when he said he felt as if somebody was telling us to get out of their house. He asked aloud if this was Mr Chesney, and challenged him to do something, anything, then we'd leave his house. Sadly, this didn't materialise. Brian closed our vigil with another prayer to ensure any spirits didn't latch onto us. It was almost 1.30 in the morning, so we'd had a few minutes to spare before we'd head off. We left Chesney's house and stood out on Mary King's close. Everyone chatted amongst themselves as I stood marvelling at the close, to think that where we were stood only a few hundred years earlier would have been a thriving populace in the centre of Edinburgh's old town, open to the skies above, and now it's a subterranean ghost town. I felt an involuntary shiver pass through me 
when I looked up the close to the location of the amazing Ghostfest 2008 photo and almost imagined seeing the same figure walking down the close. Time was ticking by and we were still waiting. The group from Annie's room hadn't turned up to take over from us, meaning that there'd been a breakdown in the chain somewhere. One of the groups hadn't moved on, which would eat into the time that we got during the final vigil of this portion of the evening, the playroom beyond the cowshed with Ian. It turned out that the reason that there was a delay was that a young blonde girl in her early 20s had fainted in the playroom and had to be taken back to the gift shop. By the time we got into the playroom it was 1.50am, so we had 30 minutes before we were due a break. Ian asked how we'd found the previous two locations, and it seemed we'd all been pretty disappointed so far. However, Ian said that the previous two groups in this room had both shit themselves, so hopefully we'd saved the best until last. He explained that out of the window was the close below, so we may see the torches of Brian's group, and out of the door to the bottom of the adjoining cowshed is near Annie's room, so we may see light under the door from John's group moving around. Ian asked for us to stand in a circle, boy girl, boy girl, which we were used to by now, and he said a prayer of protection. Straight away, two of the female members of our group began to complain of a tightening in their chest. Ian asked the spirits of the children who died in that room, which were represented by the mannequins, to come forward and make themselves known to us. Almost immediately, people began to hear things. Some people, including myself, heard talking just outside the door at the far end of the cowshed. Others, including Tom and Rich, heard footsteps in the corner of the room we were stood in. A quick check outside the door revealed nobody was outside. We asked the family who died here, the children and the mother and the father, to come forward again and make yourselves known again. Show yourselves if you're able, in light form. Maybe we can help you, but we need to hear from you first. At this point on the recording I was taken throughout the evening. There's a very clear yet indistinguishable mumble in the background, like two or more people quickly talking over one another. Yet at the time we heard nothing and nobody commented on it. It lasts for just over a minute, then totally stops. John said he could hear creaking coming from the bed with the mannequins in it. Ian suggested we move away from the bed to ensure it's not us moving around that's causing it to creak. Once we moved, the creaking seemed to stop. We stood silently hand in hand, waiting to see what would happen. But before we knew it, it was time to head back above ground for a break. At 2.20am, we resurfaced in the gift shop, blinking in the strong light. My legs were aching as I'd been on my feet for seven hours now, so in the absence of a free chair, I sat on the floor and took the weight off. Brian Boyle was holding hands with a girl who was still sobbing. We were told that he was helping her with his powers of psychic healing. After a 20-minute break, we headed back into Mary King's Close for our final vigil. The Mysteria guys had decided after a bit of a chat that the playroom and the cowshed areas had proved the most interesting. So for the remainder of our evening, we would return and see what would develop with all 30 of us present. We were stood in a huge circle which filled the room and John Blackburn said we needed to ensure that we had a woman between all of the men. Boy girl, boy girl, as best we could. Within a few minutes we managed to do this and we turned out all of the torches and we were plunged into darkness. John asked us to concentrate on building energy. There was a lot of excited, or possibly nervous chatter, which was quickly hushed. John said, 
we want you to alter the vibrations in the room now. So what we're going to do is I'll point a torch at you, and as the light passes you, you will begin to hum, just as we did earlier in Annie's room. He pointed a torch at each of us in turn, and within seconds the hum was deafening. As our humming got louder and louder, filling the room, Ian asked for the spirits to come and join us. Keep coming, keep coming. When he was satisfied that the spirit energies were here, he asked us to stop. The room fell silent. Ian talked to any spirits with us. Please use our energy and walk amongst the people here. It was silent for around 30 seconds, but with the obvious weight of anticipation from the huge number of people in the group, that 30 seconds seemed like 10 minutes. How are you, Brian? Ian broke the silence. Brian said he felt fine, he didn't sense anything. There was a bit of a commotion to my right, with a few people furthest from the entrance to the cowshed whispering between themselves. Are you guys okay? asked Ian, aware that this interruption was impacting everybody. The people getting overexcited hadn't been in our group. They explained that a guy called Trevor, who had a very strong Yorkshire accent, was feeling somebody behind him, trying to make him turn around to face the playroom. He was holding his mother's hand, and she could feel him being moved around. Apparently this had been a bit of a theme throughout Trevor's evening, with him feeling himself getting pushed and manipulated by unseen hands during the earlier vigils. John Blackburn had taught him to imagine a blue shield that would protect him and help him to beat it. I'm going again, he cried out while turning out of the circle. The guy who looked like Curly tried to help by shouting out some words of encouragement. You're the best one, Trevor. He's the best one. Trevor stopped twisting, and we carried on asking for spirits to influence people within the circle. Ian asked us to repeat, open the door in our heads, and will the door at the far end of the room to open. This would have been fantastic if it did happen, as it would be totally inexplicable, as everybody within the building was present in that room with us, with the exception of the upset girl from earlier, and a member of staff who had stayed in the gift shop to comfort her. I wasn't feeling anything out of the ordinary. I was really tired, and the uncomfortable heat being generated by so many people in the small room was making me even sleepier. I also found the whole thing a little bit surreal. We had Trevor twisting, and as I repeated open the door in my head, Curly shouted, We're all getting smaller, and then American John cried out, I feel green and fuzzy. This couldn't be any further from how we would usually conduct our own investigations. And I was trying to work out how I could apply these experiences that other people were having. And sadly, the conclusion I came to fairly quickly is that these experiences are only evidence to the people who have them, or their friends and family who accompany them and know them well enough to know their character and trust implicitly what they say had happened. As it may well be a case of seeking attention, having a bit of a laugh, or wanting something to happen so badly that they feel the need to embellish the truth, to make it appear more paranormal than perhaps it actually was. I'm not saying that's what was happening here. Everyone seemed very sincere, and no one appeared to have come along for a laugh. But I still felt nothing unusual, as voices from other people in the group continued to emanate from within the darkness, to say how they were feeling. Someone said they felt dizzy. Another person claimed they felt a woman was stood in the centre of the circle. There was another interruption from Trevor as his mother was shouting that he was twisting again. I was hoping for some physical evidence, sounds, smells or something visible, but it just didn't seem to come. We all calmed down once more and the room fell silent, 
We stood listening to Ian trying to summon the spirits to come to us and make themselves known. Brian said he was getting the spirit of a man called Henry Maxwell who was wearing a top hat, a long black coat and was dressed very smartly. Brian was then interrupted by Trevor screaming, Ah, what's that horrible thing? while pointing at something. It was R. John's face who was stood just to Trevor's left. Then he started twisting again. A few people shouted, get him out, possibly in concern, but it appeared to be mainly due to frustration, as it had become a constant interruption, and with the heat and the undoubted tiredness that people were feeling, patience was a virtue in short supply. Brian took Trevor and his mother up to base, leaving the rest of us to continue. We closed the circle, and Ian tried to G up the ghosties into putting on a bit more of a show for us. A female voice, a very well-spoken London lady, said she felt abandonment, as if we were surrounded by children who were brought here and left alone, confused as to why their parents would no longer love them or want them. As she spoke, a lady next to her said she felt as if someone was tugging at her trouser leg. This seemed promising. The posh sounding London lady said she felt dizzy, like she was going to fall. She's going to go, cried Curly. Her friend seemed a bit concerned as she was rocking. John suggested we break the circle and give her a chance to get back to normal as there was a chance of her falling down. We made the most of this short interlude, with people rubbing their shoulders after spending so much of the evening holding hands. Ian suggested it might be an idea for us all to move into the much smaller playroom, as a few people had felt drawn to it over the last ten minutes. It was going to be a tight squeeze, but we all got inside. It wasn't comfortable, but we were in. We held hands, boy girl, boy girl, for the final time, and Ian asked the spirits of the family who died in that room of the plague to come and join us. Come forward and make yourselves known to us now. Curly complained that somebody had just grabbed his bits and bobs, but it was quickly pointed out that there wasn't a free hand in the room, so it couldn't have been any of us. The last few minutes passed by uneventfully, so Ian closed down our session and we headed back upstairs for the final time. As we made our way from the cowshed up to the gift shop, it was clear that everyone was in high spirits and had had a really good night as people laughed and chatted excitedly. You'd never have thought it was 20 past 3 in the morning. The Mysteria guys debriefed us all and discussed how we'd found the evening. We all gave our guides a huge round of applause. Sadly, as I read this for you in 2023, Mysteria paranormal events no longer exist, which truly is a shame. We thanked all the members of the Real Mary King's close staff. We thanked John, Ian and Brian. And we said goodbye to everyone else. And the four of us headed out into the cold, wet Edinburgh night. We were all in agony with being on our feet for so long. So when we returned to the car, the relief was audible when we finally got to sit down. It was 3.45am and I was in desperate need of sleep. I parked up outside the bothy just after 4am and upon opening the door we discovered the heater had turned itself off and it was unbearably cold. We got ready for bed and discussed the ghost hunt we'd just experienced. We were all in agreement, we'd had an enjoyable, memorable evening. But as far as seeking our own personal evidence of the paranormal, we'd sadly learned little. It would be great to get back to Mary King's Close on our own and do our own style of investigation, relying more on our equipment and our senses to detect anything otherworldly. 
However, with Mary King's Close being such a sought-after venue and a limit on the number of investigations that they permit there each year, could I make a few calls and actually secure an investigation for our small band of ghost hunters there? Well, nothing ventured. When I wrote those words, I expected that getting us back into Mary King's Close on anything other than another organised ghost hunt, much like the one you've just heard, may just be out of reach. Little did I know at the time, but I would do exactly that. We'd be back less than six months later in February 2013, and this time, it would just be me and my small team. If you want to find out how that went, there is a brand new Patreon episode available right now, which not only covers the investigation in great detail, but includes actual audio from the night of the ghost hunt, almost a decade ago, so you can hear it exactly as it happened. If you want to listen to it right now, you can join the Patreon for only £3 a month by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod. And there's four other episodes waiting for you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at, at @howhauntedpod, or over on Instagram at howhauntedpod, where you will see photos galore relating to Mary King's Close. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com, or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, location suggestions, and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like, and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes, you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. You'll also get exclusive episodes where you'll join me on an actual paranormal investigation and hear the audio as it happened, such as the second investigation we did in Mary King's Close, which is available right now. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to support the podcast, why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee? All of the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please review and subscribe the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. This truly does help people to find the podcast. Next time we're headed to the Lake District, one of the most beautiful places in the UK, in the heart of Cumbria in the northwest of England. And in particular, we're going to a castle which dates back to 1258. In 1992, scientists began to work at this castle to try and understand why there's so much paranormal activity being reported. Which is almost a daily occurrence. It includes the disembodied voices of children singing nursery rhymes, babies crying in the early hours of the morning, sudden freezing temperatures, so cold you can see your breath, and the spectral apparition of a whole host of resident phantoms. I have spoke to staff at the castle, as well as paranormal investigators who have experienced this chilling location after dark. Let's find out together what they told me next week, when we head to Moncaster Castle. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. 
stay safe, and join me next time when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? Thank you.